Hey, Low Code Approach listeners, this is Wendy Haddad. Before we jump into this week's episode, I wanted to let you know that we are starting to plan for the next season, and we want to make sure we hear from you on what is most important and relevant in terms of the topics that we'll be choosing. So if you could open a web browser and pop over to aka.ms slash request. that's aka.ms slash request. all one word, Fill out that brief survey on what topics and what subjects, what guests you might want to hear from. And who knows, maybe it'll make it into the next season of the podcast. Thanks so much and happy listening. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Low Code Approach. I am the real Sean, not AI. And today I'm joined with... I'm Wendy Haddad. I'm a senior cloud switched architect and a former customer of Microsoft. And I'm joined by... Hi, I'm also Wendy Haddad. And I am joined by... <laughs> Just had to, you, had to, you enjoyed that so much, you had to use it a second time, right, Ken? I did. I did. Hi, everyone. My name is Ken Aguilar. I am here with Sean and Wendy, and we have with us today, Wendy, please tell us who we have so I can stop laughing. <laughs> hey, we've got Leanne Zeldsman on. Leanne is a senior product manager with Microsoft Digital, or as we, we like to say, Microsoft IT. I'm super excited, and Leanne, I'm going to let you introduce a little bit more about your role, but I got to meet Leanne when I was a former customer, so just learning a little bit more about how Microsoft runs the Power Platform for us as employees, and now I get to be on the recipient side of it. So Leanne, I'm so stoked to have you on the podcast, so why don't you tell us a little bit more about your role, and then in that, could you give us a sense of just the scale of the Power Platform usage at Microsoft? Sure. Uh, thank you for having me. As you said, product manager on our internal IT team called Microsoft Digital. We are what we call ourselves customer zero. So we are first and foremost, a customer of all of Microsoft's products. My team focuses on the usage, administration and governance of Power Platform along with some other product suites. Power BI is in that scope. Dynamics is in that scope a lot of things within the M365 space. I focus pretty specifically on Power Platform governance. So determining who is allowed to do what, where things can get built, how they can get built, what rules we put in place, what product features we enable or don't enable, what toggles we're using, all the fun stuff. That's that's my team. So Leanne, how big is your team? So we have myself and two other product managers who are running sort of the internal power platform adoption space. But we also partner very closely with our internal security teams. So both of us sort of make up Microsoft IT. So they have their own suite of product managers, security architects who help us with a lot of the work that we do. And then we have roughly three service engineers who are our tenant admins and they do all of the administrative work all the service engineering work they do cover more than just power platform their scope does go a bit broader than that which is why i said roughly and then we have three separate feature crews across both the united states and in india that do all of our software development needs related to power platform dynamics power bi 
and other of 365 products. So the ratio to maybe users, you got the three engineers supporting to about how many makers within the power platform of Microsoft? The number fluctuates. Right now, I think we're at about 50,000 or 60,000 active makers in our tenant. And when I say active, that is people that have logged in and done something within the last month or so. Obviously, Microsoft has a lot of employees and we do allow all employees the ability to build using Power Platform. So that number can be higher at certain points during the year and lower during quieter times. So we know how many users, you know, around could be working on Power Platform. How many apps or flows are you managing? Microsoft, to the best of my knowledge, still has the largest tenant in the world. We have hundreds of thousands of apps and flows in our tenant. I think last I checked, we were around 300,000 apps across our entire tenant, close to about 100,000 flows, all across almost 20,000 different environments. So we have a lot of stuff and there's a lot of things being built, which is why my team needs to exist because there's so much happening at Microsoft with the Power Platform. And somehow you still sleep at night, so you must be doing something right on the governance side. That's really interesting to hear. And I think you mentioned some development needs. So are you do you have production apps built on Power Apps, maybe enterprise-wide solutions? We do. We have some custom self-service processes that we build to supplement a lot of what the product already offers. We like to make things difficult for ourselves because we find it fun. So we do build some of our own applications, some of which are built on top of Power Apps. We use Power Apps for a lot of like our request processes. So if someone wants to request approval for a specific item or to upgrade something that they are working on, we have Power Apps that are the basis for those approval processes that both myself and the security team use. We also have a lot of Power Automate flows that we're using to run quite a lot of our automation, a lot of our data telemetry, some of the analytics that we hook up to our inventory process, all built on top of flows. So our software engineering team does that. And then they also run some of our internal governance engine, which has some policies that we enforce across the Power Platform space and M365 space and all of that fun stuff. So Leanne, let's get into this, okay? Let's like really get into all of these things. So you have over 20,000 environments. How do you decide yes, sir. on an environment strategy? What do you do? How do you classify these things? Do you have something that's highly sensitive? Do you have things that are public? Do you dump everyone into just one big bucket? What do you do? It's a great question. It's a hot topic currently, and it is something that my team is actively focusing on right now. We are right in the middle of actually shifting our environment strategy away from what our current state is and towards something that is very dependent on all the tooling that Ken's team is providing us and will continue to provide us in the near future. What we're trying to do is group together scenarios based on how risky or not risky the development may or may not be. So our goal, because we have so many things being built across all of our company, 
it's too hard for us to focus on every single possible scenario and try to customize governance to meet every possible use case. There's there's too much happening. We need it to be mostly automated. We want to use as many out-of-box controls as possible. So we kind of bucketize into three broader categories. And then within those three, there, there are sub-use cases. So the three broader categories are what we call personal productivity, individual-based productivity. This is someone who just wants to build an app or a flow for themselves to help them with their own productivity, but they're not collaborating with other people to build it. It's not being shared across the company. It's just for your own personal needs. So that's personal productivity type stuff. Somebody who wants to build an automation, oh, my manager just emailed me, marked it red and then delete it. Something like that, I don't know, <laughs> right? Exactly. I Or I don't know, you, you could have a flow that reminds you every day at 1 p.m. to go eat lunch. I didn't make that up. I do know someone that has one of those. So it, it is something that people do. So those people, the personal productivity, we are trying to point those people to use personal developer environments. They are sort of like safety little play boxes where people can go and build items, but they're very locked down. We're using managed environment capabilities to restrict sharing, to restrict what you can actually do with the environment and restrict the connectors and connector actions that are available in those types of environments. Those are the things that we deem the least risky. So we don't want to put people through all of our more rigorous compliance processes or make people jump through hoops just, just for their personal productivity stuff. So they're in that personal development box. Then we go up a step further in that risk spectrum and we get to the, the team collaboration, the team-based development. This is people that are building tooling, automation, processes, whatever they need for their team. We actively encourage people to use Dataverse for Teams environments for this. Dataverse for Teams environments are managed and controlled at the M365 group level. So a lot of that governance is already in place because membership permissions, it's tied to the group, it's tied to the team itself. So we don't need to focus too specifically in our governance efforts on how to govern those. Then we get to that final category, the things that we consider to be highest risk, the things that we are focusing most on when it comes to our governance efforts, and that is the enterprise development, production level development space. So people that are building tooling that is going to be used by all Microsoft employees, people that need access to the most powerful connectors, people that might be accessing or storing highly sensitive data types. These are the things that we want to make sure go through the right security, privacy, and compliance reviews. We want to make sure that the right controls are in place for these. So this is where my team focuses a lot of our effort, and we will be using a lot of the groups and rules capabilities coming from Ken's team to allow us to control these. First off, um, Leanne, the check's in the mail. Thank you for plugging all of our great people inside of there. Um, I do want to just make a small call out. You said something very critical, many things very critical right inside of there, but you use a lot of the on-the-box capabilities that are already just native to the platform. Like you called out managed environments, you called out some of the like attestation capabilities that are built into M365 groups. And I think that's some of the things that some of our customers and listeners are perhaps missing out on is that even without other extensible toolkits and things, there is a lot of native functionality, which enable you to govern and scale the platform 
directly without installing additional add-ins and so on. Sharn or Wendy, anything you two want to add? Yeah, so you so you mentioned earlier there's three tenant admins and you know you've got a team that works across the world on power platform but there's multiple admin centers between m365 admin center microsoft azure admin center power platform admin center how do you disperse those duties amongst the team how is that managed so that way individuals know their responsibilities and their roles as it takes to manage power platform it's a good question and i'm not sure if my answer is the one you're looking for <laughs> So we have actually recently had a big focus on looking at governance and administration more holistically across Microsoft's entire product suite. Because all of our different technologies and products are so interconnected, you have power apps that are tied to SharePoint forms, you have Dataverse for Teams environments that are linked to team groups. You can have one of the biggest benefits of Microsoft is we have so many integrations between our own products and they're so deeply interconnected. We found it difficult to silo our governance efforts. So we're looking at governance and administration more holistically. We're calling in our fancy unified governance effort. And that does influence how our service engineers administer the tenant. So like I mentioned earlier, they are very focused on the power platform administration side. But when we're talking about, okay, how do we control our tenant and make sure everything is done safely? It goes broader than just power platform itself as a technology because some of the requests or many of the requests that they frequently get from users is, hey, how do I enable this integration between power platform and this other plugin? Am I allowed to access data from these other product categories? And so they can't, in reality, focus completely just on Power Platform itself because we're operating as one Microsoft. You can't just say, okay, Power Platform's your focus and that's it, because that's not how our product suite works, which is a good thing. So Leah, let me maybe interject really quick and ask a question here. Because we've, we've sort of said this in other podcasts and I've heard folks in the community say this, is that you in the role that you're in have to be a, a bit of a Swiss army knife. You have to know about security, identity. You have to know about just so many different things. How do you perhaps stay up to date and educate yourself? Or is it just on the job learning? <laughs> on the job learning is a big part of it. And I can only answer for myself. I'm sure everyone has a slightly different approach, but I like to read. So anytime there's a new blog post about a new product or capability, or even when there's conferences, I'm usually waiting until after the conference session is done and then reading the transcript or a co-pilot summarized version of the transcript. So I a lot like an hour of my day each day just to read, learn, make sure I'm caught up on all the new happenings in the space. That's how I like to consume my information, but I'm sure everyone is different. I have a team member that loves to go to physical training sessions. So I know a few of the different product groups at Microsoft put on trainings that are designated towards different personas of people. So there's trainings for admins, there's trainings for app makers, there's trainings for et cetera, et cetera. So they like to physically go to those and learn that way. I mean, just from being on your side of the table just about a year and a half ago, I think what you said was so important. A lot of times I'm working with customers now, they're kind of like, oh, we need a full-time dedicated power platform admin only. And the problem is that 
even like you said with training, right? Or staying up to date on updates, you're just, you're trying to silo yourself in a way that Microsoft, the product itself, Power Platform is not siloed. So even if you are the Power Platform person, having at least a basic understanding of how it integrates and what's happening with those other tools and positions is helpful. I also want to just understand a little bit more because these are some of the things that I think organizations are wrestling with at scale. The Power Platform is both amazing and scary, right? It solves so many business challenges, but it's scary to see so many apps. And so as apps and flows are scaling up, you talked about you can't monitor everything, but you can't necessarily, you don't necessarily care about everything, right? You don't care about those personal productivity. What about like reviews? Are you doing kind of attestations? What kind of responsibilities and onuses other than maybe the environment strategy are you putting on the end users? I know in, in, in IT, we often have like a security attestation, you've got legal reviews and privacy reviews. And so kind of talk me through the threshold, both of the initial creation, especially when you get from that personal productivity level to the other levels. And then how do you like re-attest? Because I think sometimes even that's the chore, right? Is staying on top of it once you've done the initial attestation there. Yes. Yeah, so my team is forever trying to find the right balance between empowering and enabling employees at Microsoft to use Power Platform while still having the right amount of guardrails in place to ensure that everything that's being done is being done safely. Part of that enablement side is we only want to have controls on things where they're actually needed. So as we've touched on, if you're doing something that we deem to be less risky, we don't want to force you to have to go through 5 million different reviews just to get your app published. That would block people's ability to innovate quickly and actually do the work that's required for their lines of business. On the other end, we need to make sure that the right bar is set for items that could potentially pose more risk to us as a company. So we take a very risk-based approach when it comes to things like attestation and compliance reviews. Everything has its own internal risk rating and based on how risky or not risky something is, we're going to push you towards the scope of reviews that is required for your item. So in that more enterprise level production type development risky bucket, those are the items that fall into our category for needing a lot of the governance policies that we put in place. One of them is biannual attestation. So every 180 days, if you are a system administrator on an environment, you need to come into our tooling and you need to attest to your environment. And that attestation includes saying, yes, I am the owner, I am still accountable for this item, and I still need this item, but also providing us a little bit of additional metadata on what that item is. So things like who is the owning team, who are some additional owning contacts that are also accountable for this item, who is the target audience for the things being built within the environment, what's the data classification at the environment level for the environment itself, and then some additional regulatory scope information. Are you accessing data that puts you in scope for GDPR requirements? Do you have financial data that puts you in scope for federal financial laws? Are there UIs that might need to be tested for accessibility? This is all information that our team collects, and they're all signals that we use to then determine what compliance requirements are in scope for your item. So if you indicate that you have a certain level of data 
in your environment, for example, you might fall into that highly confidential bucket, that will then immediately require you to go through an additional privacy yeah. review with the privacy yeah. team. Same thing if you are asking to have certain more powerful connectors enabled for your environment, you're going to have to go through our security review process within whichever organization you fall at Microsoft. So it's all risk-based compliance scope. So I'm, I'm going to ask a follow-up question to that. It's how, because this sounds great. I know a lot of listeners will probably be, you know, super like, yes, that's what we want. And that's similar to our strategy, but like, how do you practically implement this? Are you building a custom process? Are you using a tool out of the box? How much is automated versus manual? Sorry to get so, so <laughs> into the weeds, but I think that this is something that organization, well, I know you, this, like, this is what people struggle with, right? And I know you talk to customers too. So I'm sure you get the how question quite often. Here. Yeah. So our governance engine and the attestation tool that is built on top of it, it is custom tooling currently. Our dream state in the future is to have everything using out-of-box controls, out-of-box product capabilities. Currently, that is not the, the case. We do have some custom tooling that is built on top of the product. And a lot of that just comes from how wide ranging and broadly our tenant reaches at Microsoft. We have such a large tenant and scalability is so important um, and custom scenarios are so important for our businesses. We have some custom tooling to handle that. So the attestation tool that we use is a custom UI and custom backend that our engineering team built. That being said, it does hook up to and integrate with a lot of those out-of-box capabilities. And as a lot of the groups and rules infrastructure comes online, again, from Ken's team, I'm going to continue plugging this because I'm very excited about it. We're going to be very deeply integrating with that. But right now it is custom policies and tooling that our team is building. So in addition to the attestation requirement, we also have things like uh, minimum ownership policies. So Every environment has to have a minimum of two owners and one of them has to be a full-time employee. We also have restrictions on guest ownership for certain environment types. We have a maximum ownership policy. So how many people are allowed to be in the sysadmin role? We have seen instances in the past where someone might have 200 sysadmins on their environment, which is a lot of people to have in a highly privileged role. So. We do have these custom policies in place to help tackle that. But once we have that ability to enforce those rule sets via the product capability, we will then be turning off our custom tooling that we have in place, filling that gap right now. So I'm going to take a weird angle here. Usually we ask our guests questions, but I got a question for Ken because it's something sparked in, in what you were saying. Ken, can you tell me more about some of the rules in the new policy engine? So... I can, Sean, but I, 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 wanna, I don't want to try and make any promises or anything like that. But mm. what I will say is that Leanne and team are very much so a customer, just like everyone else that's probably listening in right here. And so much of the feedback that they give us is what directly influences the product. So one of the things that we can say right now is that Leanne talked about attestation. That's coming in the groups and rules. So that will eventually make its way in and you will see the ability to apply and align attestation at scale through this brave new world of policy engines and so on. I'm stepping off my soapbox now and handing it back to Wendy. Uh, actually, I'm going to take it over. Uh, I'm going to grab that soapbox. Actually, not for you know like a rant or anything that we get from Wendy normally, but uh, just a question. Oh. So Leanne, 
You know, you talked a lot about different rules and how you're approaching 20,000 environments. Your strategy for this, how often is that reviewed? So is it new year, new me, new strategy? How do you actually go about reviewing your strategy and applying changes? Is that an annual process, biannual process? How, how does that work? It is ongoing forever and always. The tech landscape moves so quickly. Software moves so fast. Everything is always changing and one of the fun parts of my job is getting to react to those fast changes in the technology landscape. We don't have an official, okay, every six months we're going to sit down and look at our current strategy and see what we need to change. It, it realistically doesn't work like that. There are months where we're sticking with the status quo, and then there are weeks where maybe every day we're like, oh, we need a new thing turned on, or oh, we need to change this. The product changes so quickly. New capabilities are coming out frequently, and one of the best parts of what I get to do is figuring out how we react to that. How do we adopt those changes? How do we successfully make sure that we get things turned on and enabled in our tenant in a safe way whenever they come down the line? We are customer zero, so we are frequently getting pulled into a lot of private previews. We are frequently the first one to see and give feedback on a lot of the new product capabilities that are coming. And that requires us to react quickly to that. One big example is all of the co-pilots, all of the AI capabilities. That came very fast. It was a high priority for the company and it highly beneficial to our employees and to our unit, to our users. So we wanted to make sure that we weren't sitting around and very slowly turning these things on in our tenant. We wanted to get things out as quickly as we could, which required us to adjust our governance and security strategy to meet those needs. When things like that happen, we sit down immediately and say, okay, how can we safely turn this on for our tenant? What controls do we need in place? Do we need to have new security or governance controls spun up quickly to allow us to turn this on? Can we just use our current process? Is that good enough? What does that launch and adoption look like? What does the intake process look like? It's so fluid. We're constantly reviewing our strategy and constantly making changes. I think if I opened up one of my strategy documents from three weeks ago, it's probably already out of date. How are you then communicating? So I think there's new user new maker communication. And then if you change your strategy, how are you communicating the change and reminding them? Is there like a training or a site? Like, are you using some of the features in the tool? Like, what, do you, what are you looking at? It's a combination of a few things. We partner very closely with Microsoft Digital's communications team. So they drive a lot of these comms effort. One of our main places where we dump a lot of our information is our internal SharePoint site for M365 builders, which includes Power Platform. So anytime we are making highly impactful change to the tenant that users should know about, it is posted in the announcements section on our SharePoint site, and we have documentation, guidelines, instructions, whatever is needed to go along with that. When we are making changes that are directly impacting specific builders or users, they will likely get an email notification from my team saying, hey, we toggled this switch or made this change. Here's all the information you need to know about it. If you have any questions, please contact our support team. We're trying to find that right balance of communicating as much and as transparently as possible 
while not spamming people with every possible little change. So some things only go onto our SharePoint site. Some things are in different community channels. So there's a bunch of internal communities in Teams and in Viva Engage. And then other things warrant a direct email to whoever owns the asset that is being affected. So Leanne, you're saying many things that our customers, you being one of them, often ask and struggle with. First thing, do you have a sort of standard support model that you align to for the platform? And what I mean by that is you talked about your different environment strategies and the different levels there. So does your team support these 50,000 plus active users that you just talked about? Leanne's laughing everyone already. Or do they rely on something like a first line of defense in something like Viva Engage in terms of like a communities of practice, a Yammer channel, if you will, for those who don't know that Viva Engage has been rebranded to Yammer, our, our Yammer was rebranded the other way and so on. So how exactly do you support those things? Like, yes, the communication is important, but along with that communication comes the ability to support and scale that support. So how do you do that? Yeah, so we have a few support teams and different tiers of support engagement. Because there are so many users across Microsoft, it wouldn't be realistic for us to rely on human-based support for each and everything. A lot of our strategy is very foundational with our documentation and with the resources we provide, with the communities that we engage with, trying to make sure that 99% of questions can be answered by information that we make available or by knowledge sharing between communities so that we don't even have to jump in. Obviously, there are instances where someone needs help with something or something is broken and they need someone to actually interact with. So that's where our support teams come in. The global help desk team, which covers support across Microsoft, across all technologies, not just Power Platform specific, they're sort of our first line of defense for this. So people can engage with the global help desk team and then depending on the scope of their question, either get directed to the documentation I just mentioned or then to one of our more specifically tiered support teams to help if needed. So. Much of the requests do get routed through our front desk team, which is a vendor-based support team. There's currently one primary support contact and about half an architect's capacity, which covers roughly 150 to 200 end-user support tickets per month around the Power Platform. So they take on a lot of the support effort that we have. Then depending on the triaging and the support needs. If something is, say, like a technical bug or needs an engineer to take a look at it, then we've got an ICM support queue where, where things can get escalated if it needs more involvement or if it's something that needs someone with those fancy tenant-level admin permissions to turn on a capability or make a configuration switch, that goes through our service engineer's intake form. So there's a bit of an escalation to everything, right? Like, you know, right. I start very low and then I keep sort of building up the tree until I get to uh, Leanne solving my problem personally because she's great. Exactly. Yeah. If you find your way to me for support, something has gone very wrong because usually I don't get engaged unless something is on fire. So we, we hope that doesn't happen. We're also really trying to use a lot of the co-pilot capabilities and AI capabilities, for example, chatbots to help with support wherever possible because support is so important and obviously support capacity is 
limited at times. We're constantly trying to find new ways to supplement support where we can. And AI is has been really helpful so far. So what we're trying to do is make all of our documentation and all of our resources easier to find and easier to consume using some of the new chatbot capabilities with Power Platform, with Copilot Studio, with all of that fun stuff. A lot of that's still a work in progress, but it's something that our team has been talking about a lot recently. Hey, Leanne, so we've talked a lot about how you know you as admins and your organization as admins are working with new features that are coming out and incorporating them into your governance strategy and making sure that things roll out smoothly and everybody's able to use it. Let's talk about the inverse of that. How do you work with product to help shape new features that are coming out? You know, as the largest consumer of Power Platform, how do you work with them to make sure that new features hit right when they're released? And really be specific about how many times you've yelled at Ken because something he put out <laughs> did not work. I felt the finger pointing, Sean. I really did. <laughs> I mean, my favorite thing to do is just to show up at Ken's door and say, hey, can we get this thing? Please and thank you. I think if you look through our chat history. It's different than yelling at Ken. It's, I think that's a very specific question. It. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it just this past week, I, I think I've already pinged Ken multiple questions saying, is this available? And if not, can we get it? Please and thank you. But no, we love our relationship with the product teams and it is very, very important for us. Obviously, as I said, we're the first users of the product. So we have many opinions, lots of feedback and lots of needs as such a large tenant. So we have, I work with a very lovely team of people who are much smarter than I am. And they help track and organize all of our asks and all of our needs. So whenever myself or our engineering team are trying to come up with the strategy for how we're going to govern a certain thing, if there is something that we need that is not already available through the product, that goes into our, our feature intake form. It goes into this very long list of asks that we have that we then directly communicate to the various product teams when needed. If they are security focused, they go through our red zone security review process. If they are less security focused, there are other channels for that. But we are constantly in communication with product groups. I think I have at least one meeting a day on my calendar where I'm meeting with some product folk to tell them, hey, can you make this update? Or we noticed this thing. Could you change how this works? Or could you give us the ability to toggle this at a, at a broader level or whatever it is. We send a lot of feedback. I annoy a lot of people, but it's also a lot of fun. It's one of my favorite parts of my job whenever there's new capabilities as well, where we have asked for something and then the team says, hey, we delivered this thing. It's ready for preview. Go test it and get us some feedback. And then we send them usually a very long list of items that either saying, hey, this didn't work for us and here's why, can you change this? Or this was great, can you expand on this further? And we work with the team on their roadmap, on the product integration strategy. It's a big part of being customer zero. I think that's so important. The fact that product is getting direct feedback from users of the product, as well as I know that they, you guys read Ken, the user groups. I mean, we just had a whole episode about how you're getting feedback from the um, people at the conference. So as many people communicating that feedback is helpful and it does get heard and it's good to hear some of the processes. As you're partnering with product, Leanne, I mean, especially at the scale that Microsoft is, 
how are you actually testing that or implementing it? Are you doing like proof of concept? What scale are you doing a proof of concept? Can you talk a little bit about that structure with the behemoth that is Microsoft? Yeah, I can. I can talk to that. And all of the credit goes to our very, very smart and capable service engineering team. Usually when there is a new product capability, we play around with it in one of our test tenants before we turn it on in Microsoft's corporate tenant. So they will set up a ton of testing scenarios. They'll walk through all of the capabilities, make sure they're working as expected, and then hopefully not find any severe issues, but do their best to see if they can break whatever it is so that we have that information before it's turned on Microsoft-wide. Once the testing is done, then we try to make sure that we have a pretty solid launch and adoption strategy put in place. Again, because our tenant is so broad and has so many business critical line of business features and implementations, we we're very risk adverse when it comes to accidentally breaking people's things. So when we are turning something on, we try to do it in a controlled way or in a phased approach where possible. So my team has a group of environments that we own and we all have our own apps and flows that we're building. We like to be the guinea pigs and dog food as much as we can within our own tenant whenever possible. So. A lot of times we'll we'll turn on capabilities for a specific subgroup of environments that we have deemed to be safe to touch first. And then on the flip side of that, there's a group of environments that are deemed to be more business critical than others. And those tend to be the last to get these new updates once we've confirmed that we haven't broken things for other people. So essentially a ringed strategy in our tenant. We are actually working on making that ringed approach more structured in the coming year. But it's it's important for us to test things as much as possible and make sure that we're not going to have any surprises down the line, especially when it comes to scalability. Even if something works in our test tenant, as soon as you make that switch in a tenant that has millions of things in it, the behavior can be different. So it's always a fun, fun learning experience when we do that. Leanne, you're dropping so much gold for the customers here, right? Or there I even say probably platinum or something even more valuable inside of there. You mentioned the rings. Not every customer can or has a test tenant, even though many folks say, oh, this, what should, do I need a test tenant? Should this, you know, is this best practice or something like that? One of the things I, I always sort of tell customers is align what's best for you and your organization, but not necessarily like, you know, following the, the standard document, if you will. One little quick thing that you called out was you do have rings within production and you do slowly roll out features to specific environments, not, you know, just all up. So I think that's a very important call out just to say that you don't have to apply everything to the platform. You can do it in very intricate and detailed stages. Yeah. And I think one of the most useful things that we've seen is when any sort of toggle or configuration, whenever it's made available, when there's the ability to toggle it at the environment level, in addition to having that on or off switch at the tenant wide level, that's super helpful for us. Like if we can gate per specific environment or groups of environments, that's gold for us. Super controversial question. On or off by default? 
off by default. I am team off by default. Hey, Leanne, thank you so much for joining us. You know, actually, one one final question that just came to mind because I took the mic. To any new or aspiring Power Platform admin, do you have any advice for them that they can go and take away? Determine what your risk tolerance is based on whatever scenarios that you are trying to administer. And then, and then go have fun. There's so many cool things that you can do with Power Platform. You can build things so quickly in such intricate ways without any sort of technical expertise. As long as you have a general idea of how you want to govern that and know what your risk tolerance is, go let people do things. Power Platform's cool. I love it. I absolutely love it. That was fantastic. I know that Ken is had to have been put on mute because he has so many more questions that we're probably going to have to do a second episode on this topic with maybe some more controversial topics to be covered. And I know Wendy has a lot more questions too. So Leanne, thank you so much for, for sharing your time with us and your thoughts. We are really excited to have you back and covering a lot more about Power Platform Governance. Next time. For having me. Super excited for some more controversial questions. Bring me back oh. for those. That's That sounds great. <laughs> I've got a list, like guest access, which model, like on by default. I mean, like, yes, I've got a long list of